Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the BFI podcast. My name is Anna. I'm Henry. And this week, we're recording this in the sweltering heat in London in a studio, and we might die in the making <laughs> of this episode, but it'll be worth it because I'm super chuffed in particular that we'll be talking about Heathers, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year and is coming back to UK screens on the 10th of August. And we'll be joined later on by the director and one of the original Heathers as well. But before that, we wanted to kick off off with the question to end all questions directly from the film if you inherit five million dollars the same day aliens land on the earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days what do you do i've always wondered how many aliens it would be because if it was a couple of them could split it 2.5 million each and maybe bribe them not to do it what if it's five million aliens one dollar each but the exchange rate depends, right? Because they might be from a planet where a dollar is like 10 million of their Zotooks or whatever it is. And then you could bribe them all the same. That's very logical and also very unfun. What would be your answer? Well, I would buy them all cinema tickets to go and see Mamma Mia 2. Here we go again. <laughs> and kill so them that... off. <laughs> <laughs> no, to bring a bit of joy back into their lives so they wouldn't want to blow up the earth. Or I'd make them binge watch Game of Thrones, but leave out the last season so that they have to keep us alive in order to watch the finale. That's very clever, Anna. I love your um, commitment to the power of drama and art there. It's great. <laughs> right. Um, so I think we both wanted to talk about one show in particular, right? Yeah, I mean, the heat this week is incredible. And I wish we had one of those things that is in the opening titles of this show that we're going to talk about over and over again. It's Sharp Objects. It's on HBO, but the opening titles of that, which are great, contain about 20 different fans going round and round and round. Um, this is the show that is based on Gillian Flynn's book, stars Amy Adams, and it's a kind of dead girl murder mystery, but with a twist, which we haven't quite got to yet because we've only seen episode one to three, right? Exactly. Have you read the book? I haven't read the book. I didn't want to, actually, because I'm enjoying the show, so I didn't want to spoil it for myself. It's a really different experience if you've read the book, yeah. although I did read it years ago. But I think it's so much more than just a dead girl mystery, don't you think? Well, I, I hope it is, because as I said, the first three episodes tend to give you this feeling that you're just getting embedded into the, the murder mystery that we see. But 
it's particularly in the way it's edited, you get this real sense that there's something much stranger going on here, potentially a kind of character twist somewhere down the line. And that, for me, is really down to, is it Jean-Marc Vallée who directed and edited yes. the first three episodes? He, I believe, is attached to direct all of the episodes in ah, the series. Okay. Yeah. And I can completely see what they would tap him to do this because it's so centred on memory and on trauma and then overcoming that and also on this kind of you know, sweltering and really confining aspect of memory as well. What if after you die, part of you goes to heaven, part of you stays here? Just to see how things turn out. Wind Gap. There was a murder there. Another one's missing now. Get me a story. Hi, Mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. Camille, look at you. I'm glad you're home. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the riling. Amy Adams' character comes back to her small, dingy, south-of-the-states town, which you can tell by the way that she talks about it, by the way she resists going back there, doesn't really hold the best memories for her. Mm. And the way that he edits and kind of directs the story as well, you can see these flashbacks to moments and the way that in her life and in her past and the way she interacts with her past. And he weaves that into the narrative really visually as well. It's never just a straight flashback, you know, that's slightly tinted CP or black and white and you know that's in the past. It's really, really visual. And it's so deeply rooted in Southern Gothic as well, don't you think? Totally, yeah. And what I loved about it was that Amy Adams' character, who's a journalist who's down there to write a story because it's her hometown, she presumably has a kind of a colour and a personal narrative she can bring to it, but she's a, com- a massive pisshead as well. And she's drinking vodka out of water bottles. And you get the sense through the way that it's edited that you are seeing the recollections of an alcoholic, like memory is fragmented and thrown all over the place. And it reminded me a little bit of his film Wild in that sense, in that the Reese Witherspoon movie about her going mm-hmm. off into the wilderness and trying to cure herself of various addictions. That was edited in the same way, that you've got these scrappy recollections of things that might be true or might not be true, but they all kind of pile together into this narrative that kind of is telling you a, a lie at the same time as maybe telling you the truth. And I love that whole feeling of the drunken, unreliable narrator. We need to talk about your daughters. Oh, one of them is dangerous. The other one's in danger. One of the things that I really, really love about Chirp Objects is that every single one of the female characters, particularly this central kind of family dynamic of Amy Adams' characters and Patricia Clark's characters, mother Adora and her other younger daughter, Amma, feed off of each other in such a negative and toxic way. And it's so, you know, scary to see those relationships unfold and how they all have their strange addictions and problems and how they kind of, you know, torture each other psychologically constantly all the time. Ma said she saw a ghost once. I'm not scared of them ghosts. Are you? But it is beautiful to be living in a moment where these really, really complex stories centered on 
difficult female characters are now starting to come out. We've had so many Breaking Bads, we've had so many Mad Men's, and now we finally have Sharp Objects and Big Little Lies um, last year as well. Absolutely. I love the idea of Patricia Clarkson as the scion of a pig farming dynasty. And also this incredibly manipulative woman who has these physical tics as well, like where she pulls out her eyelashes Mm -hmm. in moments of stress. Sure. I'm doing it right now. now. (laughs) Exactly. I appreciate what you did and I apologize for my daughter's behavior. Which one? What are you talking about? I caught Emma out after curfew with her friends. Emma? Come on, Dallas, no need for that. Gayla? Gayla? Yes, ma'am. Would you fetch Emma for me, please, and and get the chief his usual? The usual with coffee or ice. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thank you, Don. What else have you seen or enjoyed this week? The other thing that um, I've been really, I haven't seen this film, but I've been really obsessing over The Rock. He's got a new film coming out called Skyscraper. I can't wait to see it. I think there's something so interesting about the screen and public persona of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I think he's one of the only action heroes we've got left. And it's so interesting how he presents himself to the audience as well, how he's so immensely likable even when he does, you know, these big budget, really aggressive, really macho films. And then on the other hand, he's like this really family friendly big screen star and is brilliant at it. And he can really play off of his own persona and his own life. Kind of he had a career previously as a wrestler, as a professional wrestler. It's always been fascinating to me, particularly now that he's one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, how he's using that to his advantage. And Um, molded this kind of screen persona that is very non-threatening and very asexual as well. And but at the same time, he's got this even parodies, the smoldering intensity that he's got on screen. (laughs) Is your family enjoying their stay? Very much so. They're shocked you gave us the entire floor. After your security assessment, what do you think of the building? With all due respect, he's a glorified security guard. Please 
The Pearl is the tallest, most advanced building in the world. You've built a vertical city, but you've brought with it every single safety and security challenge that I could think of. It's funny, I hadn't really thought about The Rock as asexual before, but you're absolutely right. Like, there's nothing... I can't imagine him in bed. <laughs> no, and he never really has uh, romantic interests in no. films. Not, not really. He's much more of a bromance type star. Yeah. He'll be much more interested in developing a relationship with colleagues or his, you know, police partner. I'm thinking of Central Intelligence as well, where the whole point is that he's reconnecting with his friend yeah. um, who's played by Kevin Hart. And in Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which is excellent, he's got this sort of parody of himself and the parody of the fact that he's expected to end up with the girl. Yeah, and many people have made this point before, but the sense that they tend to cast opposite him women who are of a similar age, and they feel like marriage relationships, rather mm -hmm. than that relationships throughout the films, are going to develop into something sexy, or he's going to save them from danger. There's a real sense that, yeah, he's a kind of modern film star. The other way that he's a modern film star that, again, people have talked about a lot is the way that he publicizes his own movies and mm -hmm. becomes a kind of champion to them to a fault. And you linked me up with a podcast which talked about this at great length. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, though. And they were saying how the brand of The Rock has essentially taken over The Rock in some senses and that doing things like arguing that the cinema score, which is based on audience reaction, mm -hmm. makes more sense to people than the critic score, which is based obviously on reviews from trusted publications can be damaging to him in a sense as well. And that's film critics saying that. So obviously they're going to have a, their own biased opinion. But I think there might be something in that, that you can become the people's champion to an extent that becomes damaging to your own integrity. In case you want to listen to the podcast episode that Henry was mentioning about The Rock, it's one of the latest episodes of Fighting in the War Room. My name is Dave Gonzalez and my favourite, Dwayne, The Rock Johnson movie. It's Michael Bay's Pain and Gain. And what about you? What have you been watching this week? Uh, I haven't been watching much, but I have been reading a piece by Keith Stewart on The Guardian, um, who wrote an amazing piece about the Street Fighter movie. Um, we've gone really pop. I, mean, I like this. It's a good pop first few minutes. Um, Keith's piece was basically about how Street Fighter, the film, was the apocalypse now for the Generation Y. And that it's so many things were thrown at that film to make it not work. Like Jean-Claude Van Damme had a huge coke habit. The weather was terrible in Bangkok, so they couldn't record sound because of the rain drumming on the tin roofs of the set that they'd built. Nearly everybody on the film hadn't been fight trained in time, so they all had just had to do these kind of rope moves, which meant that they were all doing the same fighting style, which for Street Fighter is a disaster. And Raul Julia, who played um, Gomez in the Adams Family he films. Did was suffering from stomach cancer at the time that the film was made as well and was very seriously ill. So he was playing a guy called M. Bison, who's the main big baddie, and he's supposed to be all-powerful, but looks physically in pain for most of the film. I'm going to kick Bison's ass. I don't think so. You have to do better than that. Okay. So it's an incredible story that keeps strung together and talking to the writers and the producers and the director about how this film, which was essentially a cash grab by Capcom, the company that made the computer game, was pulled together at the last minute and has still somehow got this campy elegance to it that people still love. And it was written by Steve D'Souza, who was wrote Die Hard. Mm -hmm. And that shows there's some real great lines in it. I hope we've got a clip of this, but it's a clip where um, Ra Julia's character is talking about the impact that him as a genocidal dictator has had on a local village. You and your gang of murderers gathered your small ounce of courage to raid across the border for food, weapons, <laughs> slave labor. My father was the village magistrate. A simple man with a simple code, justice. 
He gathered the few people that he could to stand against you. My father saved his village at the cost of his own life. You had him shot as you ran away. I'm sorry. I don't remember any of it. You don't remember? For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. So on to our main point of discussion, which is Heathers. And I'm just going to start off and say, I cannot believe you had not seen Heathers before me forcing you to talk about it on this podcast. I feel like I cannot believe Henry has not seen is going to become a regular <laughs> feature on the show. And I like it. Um, yeah, I saw Heathers for the first time yesterday. And you've seen it, what, like 20 times? Let's not talk about that. I've seen it over <laughs> 70 times. I want to know what is the first impressions of of Heathers, which turns 30 this year, yeah. watching it for the first time in 2018. It's very, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well done. I, thank you. I loved it. I thought it was um, brutal, cynical, uh, and nasty in a way that so many films aren't. And I include in that things like John Hughes movies, which I've never really... I like, I do, but I've always found them a little bit problematic in that they tend to give us what they call an honest version of what teenage life is, but it's also quite sunny and sugary and a little romantic. And I don't remember what what teenage life was that, like that well, but I do remember it wasn't particularly sunny, sugary or romantic, for me at least. And Heather's felt like much more of a closer analogy to my teenage years, albeit without the brutally murdering four or five of my classmates and then maybe trying to suicide bomb the rest of them. But... There is definitely something so bleak and dark about this film that just screams the fact that it would never get made today in the same way for various good reasons as well as bad. But I just, I, I did, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I've never really, and you're going to scowl at me, I've never seen the point of Winona Ryder. And then I watched this film and realised that if she's playing that role at 16, she's so good in this movie. She's the absolute linchpin. And you are giving me a surprise look yet again, Anna. I'm so happy that this film made you appreciate the genius that is Winona. But um, that's for another episode to dissect what is your issue with her because she is a star. And um, an icon of her day. God, come on, Veronica. What is your damage, Heather? Don't blame me. Blame Heather. She told me to haul your ass into the calf pronto. Back me up, Heather. Yeah, she really wants to talk to you, Veronica. Hey, I'm going. Jesus Christ. Watching it as an adult, it seems even more hardcore than I remember seeing it because it's really snippy. The dialogue is fantastic. It's endlessly quotable and it all looks great. You know, it's really visually striking. It has this sort of, you know, poppy, um, color coordinate, like pastel look. But then the brutality of the teenage experience is so incredibly dark, yeah. particularly the bullying aspect and this sort of weird, never-ending hierarchy of um, abuse that exists in high schools. When one when one kind of mean girl is gone, another one takes her place. They really get to the heart of how people in high school identify people that they want to abuse or that they want to bully and how it's a never-ending cycle that's perpetuated by, you know, the status quo of being a teenager and in a school with other teens. And I thought that really struck me maybe for the first time, even having watched it so, so many times. And I kept picking up these details, particularly with the character 
of Martha, who they constantly bully throughout the film. She's always there. She's always silent. She never speaks until the very, very end when she's finally shown kind of one act of kindness. She's the only character as well who genuinely tries to hurt herself. And she's never really spoken of. It's all seen as a ploy for attention, as a ploy for popularity, where there's everybody else who, you know, dies in in Heather's is actually being murdered, which is, you know, let's not even get into that. But they're they're taken on as these sort of martyrs of teenage angst and not being understood and kind of, you know, speaking of hidden depths of feeling in teenagers. Morning, Heather. Veronica. And Jesse James. Kelsa, please. Hear about Veronica's affection for regurgitation. Heather, I think last night we both said a lot of stuff we didn't mean. Did we? How the hell did you get in here? Um, Veronica knew you'd have a hangover, so, uh, I whipped this up for you. It's a family recipe. What did you do, put a phlegm globber in it or something? I'm not gonna drink that piss. I knew this stuff would be too intense for her. Intense? Grow up. You think I'll drink it just because you call me chicken? Just give me the cup, jerk. enemy same difference the first heather um dies because jd and veronica feed her this drain cleaner that she swallows and then falls over dead and then they depict that as a suicide to try and mm-hmm. get away from the rap but then martha is the only person who consciously hurts herself but i think she does that because she wants to gain the popularity of heather right it's like her only way to get into the society that she wants to be a part of so desperately is to do that desperate an act because it's become popular. And for a film to come out and kind of popularise self-harm in that way and make it this weird, like, branding exercise you do for yourself in your social set is incredibly dark, cynical, and probably more true than we'd like to admit a lot of the time when it comes to copycats. Um, I'll disagree with you there that she's doing it to copy what the popular kids are doing. I think in a way, um, Lazan Falk's character, who we'll be speaking to in a minute, um, does try to do that as a way of, um, as a cry for help, but also because that's what she sees her direct friends uh, do. But I think Martha, her pain is always in the background. Mm. She's constantly being abused and taunted by the Heathers, by the Jocks, by everyone else. She never actually speaks. Um, And even when she does try to hurt herself, she's ridiculed for it. So I don't think she'd do do it for attention. I think that's the sort of, for me, one of the takeaways watching, re-watching Heathers as an adult is that you can see um, that the real pain is there it's not trying to mock teenage pain or teen angst at all it's not trying to say that you know hurting yourself is a way of being popular I think what's the message that I took away from it now is that um, it is there and it should be taken seriously because people can hurt themselves but it's actually the adult world you know the media the teachers that try to the parents that try to jump onto this um, you know fake suicide Mm. train if you're gonna openly be a bitch it's just Heather why can't we talk to different kinds of people Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. Do I look like Mother Teresa? If I did, I probably wouldn't mind talking to the geek squad. What's your favourite line? Um, oh God, 
there's so many to choose. <laughs> I can't do this. Um, but I would have to say that one of my favorite lines is when Veronica says, when she's talking about her friends and she says, it's just like people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. <laughs> I think that's such a beautiful analogy of um, life in high school. It's a job. I love it when Veronica says, great pate, but I'm going to have to motor if I'm going to make it to that funeral. It's like, <laughs> it's both yuppie and bitchy and high schooly all at the same time. You could just you can just frame the entire script for that film. Mm, feels like my life as well. <laughs> what are you gonna do with the money? I'd go to Egypt. With a girl. I'd use the money for an end of the world get together. I pay me down a million bucks to sit on my face and have a ride like the Kentucky Derby. It's gotta be the most spooky ass question I ever heard. Alright, this is important. After taxes are only beginning. She should pay me though. You go to the zoo and you get a lion. And then you put a remote control bomb up its butt. And then there's social security, legal fees. You push the button on the bomb and you and the lion die like one. We're really pleased to be joined now by one of the original Heathers, Lizanne Falk. Um, she is going to be also on stage at the BFI South Bank on the 8th of August when we're presenting the restoration premiere of Heathers for its 30th anniversary. Thank you so much for making the time to chat to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm chuffed too. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to really kind of go back a little. What did you expect the film would become? Did you have a feeling that it might become this massive cult classic? Never in my wildest dreams did I expect to be discussing this movie with anyone 30 years later. Saying that, when we made the movie, we all thought it was something special and different and quirky and definitely um, provocative. Um, but it's just, I, I, I don't know, I just don't think, you, you think about those things going in, you just think, oh, this is really fun, I'm going to have a great experience and I'm doing something that'll hopefully make an impact. What did you first think when you actually, you know, saw it with an audience back in 1998? Well, the first time that we saw it with an audience was at a test screening with real teenagers and um it was very apparent that people didn't know what to make of it and and they didn't know if they were supposed to laugh or it was supposed to be horrifying and i think that is probably one of the elements of a dark comedy um that that you know is difficult to gauge with an audience whether they're going to get it or not get it and it's almost like they needed permission to say "Ooh, that's kind of funny but that's a really serious topic so uh, is it okay for me to laugh about mm -hmm. it um and i think that was also probably an issue with the um company who was um doing the marketing they didn't really know how to mm -hmm. market it because it was wasn't like anything that ever came before it wasn't straightforward it's incredibly funny but also deeply, deeply tragic as well. It's such a strange movie to rewatch as an adult because I grew up watching it as a teen and I always took it as a as a comedy and it kind of fe you feel connected to it when you're growing up as a teenager and rewatching it quite recently for the re-release, I was really struck by just how seriously it took, you know, teenage pain as well. But um and, and kind of coming back to your character as well, Heather McNamara, she is one of the characters who's, you know, suffering even in the background. And it's not something that she talks very openly about until um, the end. I think it's a, a, a at that stage in your life when, when you're a teen and you're trying to find out who you are and what you're made of and what your voice is. And the way that I approached at the time was 
the Heather McNamara was, you know, she was pretty, she was popular, she was happy to be a part of the in crowd. But then as things went dark and, and people started questioning that, I think she also, you know, as the character of myself, looked inward and said, you know what, I'm taking a closer look. I'm actually going to look in the mirror and, 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 and life isn't what, what I'm pretending, which is a lot of times the case. And, you know, you think about the world today with social media and, and how so many people have to present on a daily basis, this incredible life of where they're, you know, holiday and what they eat and what they do. So at that time, at least it was a little more innocent. Now it's, it's, I couldn't even imagine trying to cope with those insecurities and questions and, in, in you know, the, the digital age. Just to wrap up and to end, um, because we've been asking ourselves that question as well. Um, what's your personal favorite quote from Heather's? The thing that recently stuck out that I found, I don't know why it mm -hmm. st stuck out when the Pauline Fleming character says, whether to kill yourself or not is one of the most important decisions a teenager can make. Just the absurdity of that line. Um, for the first time, I never actually paid attention to it before, but it really, you know, stood out to me now. And then, of course, <laughs> I love what's your damage? <laughs> that's, that's just a good classic. <laughs> well, I think that's the, the brilliance of Dan Waters because he didn't take the dialogue of that moment because that would have been dated. He kind of created his own. And so it doesn't go into a time capsule. It just kind of holds its own space, which is great. How very. And now we're really, really pleased to have the director of Heather's, Michael Lehman, on the line with us. Michael, hello. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm really, really chuffed to be able to speak to you. Do you think that something like Heather's could be made today? No. Uh, I mean, I think that <laughs> for a couple of the obvious reasons are, at least in the States, if, if you make a mm -hmm. movie that deals with violence in high school, or extreme forms of bullying in high school, and you do it as satire or comedy, you run the risk of um, either being either being condemned by people who are too politically correct or being condemned by mm -hmm. people who are too right-wing. You know, you get it from both sides. And I think that the, the idea now that you have to be more responsible in what you present uh, to, the, to the world of entertainment or to the world of cinema that would make it even harder to make now than it was back then. It was very difficult to get the movie made when we did do it. At the time, kind of working with this really, really young cast, I think Winona was a teenager when she did Heathers, wasn't she? She may have been only 15 when we cast her, um, or she yeah. just turned 16. And Shannon Doherty, I'm pretty sure, turned 16 during our shoot. Uh, Lizanne was a little bit older. I remember thinking that the, that the teenagers we cast did understand what the movie was about and they had some understanding of the tone of it because they got the humor or it was you know I, I found a way to present it to them so they understood that the humor came from playing the characters as as written and as conceived without having to try to kind of exaggerate the humorous elements or without trying to overplay anything so there there was a lot of work in making sure that everybody delivered this very unnatural dialogue in a very natural way, in a naturalistic way. And uh, it, it took a little bit of work, but but I felt like the people people who were in it got it better than their parents, who some of whom objected to them <laughs> being in the movie, and wasn't that hard to get them on board. And certainly for mm -hmm. Winona, 
Winona completely understood the tone of the film and the nature of the satire, mm-hmm. and she was she was very good to work with on that front. Everything about the film, you know, the fashion, the dialogue, um, the way that, you know, the the performances of the actors as well, it feels, yes, very much of its time, but it also sort of otherworldly, where this could be, you know, it couldn't be made today, but it could exist at any high school, and it's not dated in the way that other films from the time are visually. Also, I love how you kind of co- color coordinate almost all the characters. Well, the um, the color scheme for the for the three Heathers it came from the script. You know, Dan Waters, who wrote it, is brilliant. Mm-hmm. He thought this through the way most young screenwriters don't. I mean, he conceived the movie visually as well as uh, verbally. And uh, that made my job easier and more fun because between myself and John Hutman, who was a production designer, and Rudy Dillon, who was the costume designer, and Francis Kenny, who lit the movie, we were able to take Dan's original concept of color coding the three Heathers and then play with color mm-hmm. as a theme in a way which wasn't entirely, I mean, that was something that filmmakers, of course, always do. And in fact, when, the first movie I ever worked on was as a production assistant on a movie called One from the Heart, which was a Coppola film that was very designed, and Vittorio Storaro shot it, and he assigned specific moves to specific colors. And I had seen, as a, as a young wannabe filmmaker, I'd seen people play with those elements. So for me, it was a great challenge and a fun thing to, to work with. And Hutman, the production designer, did he really did a great job in kind of figuring out how to filter that throughout the whole look of the movie. Okay, that's amazing. I mean, it, make, it makes the, um, the script of this even more impressive, the fact that he was thinking about that visually. Well, everybody's life has got static. Is your life perfect? Oh, yeah, I'm on my way to a party at Remington University. Mm. No, my life's not perfect. I don't really like my friends. Yeah, I, uh, I don't really like your friends either. It's just like... There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. Maybe it's time to take a vacation. And that's it for this episode. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please. And let us know what you think of the show directly. You can find me and Henry on Twitter. I'm on Anna B. Demented, and Henry is on at Henry H. Barnes. We're hosted by Acast and Pete Sale is our producer. More of his work on petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks and your last line of this episode comes from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Be excellent to each other. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.